A reading from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Yet among the mature we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish, but we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And from the book of Acts. Now when the rulers, elders, and scribes saw the boldness, the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. When they saw the man who had been cured standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they ordered them to leave the council while they discussed the matter with one another. They said, what will we do with them? For it is obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We cannot deny it. But to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Thank you, Margaret and, and Ray, for reading our scripture this morning. When I was here uh, about six weeks ago and spoke from this pulpit, I'm not sure many people, including myself, knew that you were so close to calling your new pastor. Uh, except, I guess the search committee was aware, but um, uh, congratulations in, in that uh, good work. Uh, I know you'll very much enjoy um, uh, Rob Wallace's leadership. Uh, as uh, he comes to be your next next pastor. Although there may be some confusion between Rob Wallace and Bob Wallace. I don't know. You know, Bob can preach it too. So <laughs> uh, maybe you need to call him Robert or something like that to keep him straight. But uh, congratulations, and I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that you are moving along in that direction. If Samuel Johnson was right that patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel, then Romans 13 is the leading proof text affording cover for much political activity, including political mischief. Most recently, it's been cited by the Attorney General to try to inoculate the administration's immigration policy and child separation practice. And it was also the proof text of the German evangelical church that supported Hitler in the 1930s. And a whole lot in between. 
Well, since it has been in the news lately, and because, Christ, because Christian citizenship is as misunderstood as it is important, I would like to address it this morning, sort of in the aftermath of our celebration of our nation's independence a week or two ago. So what shall we make of, of Paul's seemingly robust endorsement of the Roman government? Yes, some scholars think that, that, that he's talking not about the Roman government, but about the leaders of the synagogue where the Christians, both Judean and Gentile, continued to worship before breaking away to form their house churches. But that's a topic for discussion that's left for another day. Well, here Paul speaks in glowing terms of the state. Paul affirms not only our allegiance to the state, but he says the authority of the state is divinely ordained. Civil government is good. And if Paul's teaching uh, applied to, to the ham-handed Roman rule in the first century, how much more should it apply to us today living in a robust constitutional democracy? This is a portrayal in Romans 13 of what I like to call the sunny side of government. The sunny side of government. Paul outlines, first of all, the, the purposes of government in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 4. First, to promote the common good. And then to protect its citizens. And then to restrain evil and punish the wrongdoer. Promote the common good, protect citizens, restrain and punish evil. Notice very quickly that Paul does not list any spiritual duties on the part of government. Much to the chagrin of those who would want government to give religion a helping hand in terms of money, tax dollars, and other forms of endorsement. Paul also gives guidance about how his readers should relate to government. We are to be good citizens. And it's okay to have pride in one's country. Paul never tried to hide his Roman citizenship. In fact, asserted it in Acts 22 to avoid being flogged by a Roman tribune. And by the way, Boswell later said that Samuel Johnson was only talking about false patriotism, not genuine patriotism. Well, what, what duties, according to, according to Paul, do we Christians owe to our government? First, we are to submit to authority. And if you look over in 1 Peter, the, uh, Peter uh, has similar teaching uh, along with Paul. So Peter and Paul are pretty much on the same page when it, when it comes to the, the, the need for us to submit to, to authority. We must obey just laws. We must pay taxes, and we see this in several places. Matthew 17, talking about the temple tax that should be paid. Matthew 22, the famous, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's, having to do with a question about the payment, payment of taxes. 
And then finally, to pray for our leaders, not just the ones we like, but all of our leaders. Over there in, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, we, we find the injunction to, to pray for leaders. So, so submit, obey, pay, pray. All of this calls for us to perform a pastoral role. Sometimes we are supposed to be priests to government, like Elisha pastoring, cajoling, and comforting Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. Sometimes we provide a pastoral word to government, including prayer. And this is the hardest to do, don't you know, when your political opponents are in office. Indeed, this is the ideal, the sunny side of government, the passage we just love to read on the 4th of July. But there is also a dark side of government which we ignore at our peril. Along with Romans 13, we have Revelation 13 and Revelation 14, where John calls the same state a blasphemous beast and the great whore of Babylon. This is the text we like to read on April the 15th, don't you know? I don't know if you saw it yesterday, but Rachel held Evans had a very nice op-ed on the religion page in the Washington uh, Post talking about this very very thing, um, where where she uh, speaks in terms not of the sunny side and the dark side, but times uh, in our our discipleship when we have to acquiesce to government and when we have to and should resist government. If you haven't read it, uh, look it up online, and it's really very, very good. The passage from 1 Corinthians teaches that we are to have a a healthy suspicion of the, quote, rulers of this age. We not only have, have a pastoral role towards government, but our citizenship demands more. It also sometimes drives us to be prophets. Hands folded in prayer become raised fists for prophetic utterance. Sometimes it requires us to be prophetic, like Nathan demanding that David repent from his sinful ways and to toe the line of righteousness. Religion doesn't exist just to prop up government, but to challenge government and to call it to judgment. And this is the hardest to do when you kind of like those who control the reins of power. And the verses from from Acts in chapter 4 give an example of the disciples, Peter and John, refusing to kowtow to human authority and to obey God instead. Again, so they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. We are to obey just laws, to be sure. 
But where conscience is violated, we say no to Caesar and yes to God. And this is where religious liberty comes in. A safety valve in the First Amendment, right smack dab up front in the First Amendment to protect the rights of conscience. The dark side warns of the dangers of state-established religion and civil religion. When government meddles in, in religion for or against or takes sides in religious disputes favoring one over another, someone's religious liberty is denied and everyone's is threatened at that very point. And even, even more innocuous, milder forms of civil religion one nation under God in the pledge and in God we trust on our coins. Even milder forms of civil religion, while almost always constitutionally permissible, are in many cases unfortunate and risky. It can so easily be abused for political gain, quickly morph into an idolatry of nationalism, or result in the trivialization of religion. So here we are, living in the, the inevitable and sometimes uncomfortable tension between the sunny side and the dark side of government. Both are always present to some degree, even in our country. You know, Tony Campolo, the great Baptist preacher and, and sociologist, has said that the United States of America may be the best Babylon in the world, but it's still Babylon. Let me offer two suggestions about how to engage government as Baptist Christians. The first is a theological virtue. Any foray into, into the public square with focused religious motivation should be tempered with a healthy dose of humility. And for good reason. Was it, was it Pascal who said that men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction? We need to understand that, that however sure we think we are of our position, the other person at least has something to say, and maybe in the final analysis will turn out to be right. As my predecessor at the, at the Baptist Joint Committee, James Dunn, said of the bombastic broadsides that we hear from both extremes of the political spectrum, what they say is not totally false, it's just falsely total. <laughs> Not totally false, falsely total. It often lacks a note of, of self-evaluation, of tentativeness, of nuance, of humility that one needs to bring to bear on public policy messages based squarely on one's religious conviction or motivated by religious conviction. Barbara Jordan, our Baptist sister, had it right. At a meeting of the Baptist Joint Committee some 30-plus years ago, she was asked how properly to, to articulate Christian values in government where she served in the House of Representatives. And her response went something like this, quote, You would do well to pursue your cause with vigor. 
vigor, as she would say. Pursue your cause with vigor while remembering that you are a servant of God, not a spokesperson for God. And remembering that God may choose to bless an opposing point of view for reasons that have not yet been revealed to you. End quote. The theological principle of humility must come into play to temper our religious exuberance. And the second suggestion is ethical in nature, how we behave. We must always, always, always tell the truth when we address government or participate in the political process, whether we are acting as priests or prophets. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong with, with speaking out forcefully. Sometimes unvarnished honesty requires us to ruffle some feathers now and then. Truth with the bark on it, as it were. For goodness sakes, Jesus said some hard-hitting things, didn't he? And probably a lot more that didn't even make it into the Gospels. But what we say must be based in love for the neighbor and for the enemy. Clearly, I'm not talking about romantic love or even brotherly affection. But desiring the best for our neighbor however much we may disagree with him or her. And it means at least giving them the right to be wrong and the freedom within the bounds of the law to pursue their conscience and their opinions. Humility and love, a virtue and an ethic Serve us well as we try to know when to fold our hands in priestly prayer and when to raise our fist in prophetic rebuke. Stephen Decatur's famous dictum, My country, right or wrong. Haven't you heard that many times over? My country, right or wrong, was later amended by Carl Schultz, a political leader in the late 19th century, a senator from, from Missouri, I think. Amended Decatur's dictum to say, my country, right or wrong, yes. When right, keep it right. And when wrong, set it right. When right, keep it right. When wrong, set it right, end quote. Good advice, I think, for all Americans, and no less for Baptist Christians, and for each of us here this morning. Amen and amen.